You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of 2 Timothy. We're calling Resolute. With this week's message, here's senior pastor Lance Bourgeois. So I will tell you, I'm definitely one of these people that tells you that I'm grateful that cell phones with cameras were not everywhere where I was growing up. It certainly would have changed the way that maybe you would think about me. I recognize this is that living 10 hours, being here 10 hours away from where I grew up has allowed a level of anonymity between my past and my present. As I tell you that, I'm going to share a story with you here in a minute, and it may give you reason to believe when I say, I think there's a whole lot of people from my past that would say, Lance does what for a living? There's just no way. Wait, the same Lance? Let me tell you one of those stories. Uh, So I'm in sixth grade. I'm at a Christian school, and they had moved our classroom down into the library. And so the library, you didn't have desks. There were just tables in that room. And so I'm in there taking notes while the teacher's teaching. Right off the bat, I feel pretty good about myself because I'm taking notes. But on this particular day, I'm sitting there, and granted, it's not uh, stellar student posture to be taking notes. I'm kind of laying down on the desk, and I'm taking notes. I can look up and see the teacher and so forth. Well, the headmaster of the school walked in and started talking and realized that I was laying all over the table, as he calls it, and says, "Uh, Mr. Bourgeois. Uh, why are you laying all over your desk? We don't do that in class. Sit up. And, uh, okay. So I wasn't trying to be smart. I, like, I mean, I get it. Okay, so I'm laying on the desk. So now I move to this posture. And so teacher goes back to teaching, and I'm just taking notes. And he interrupts the teacher again and says, Mr. Bourgeois, we don't lay all over our desk in class, do we? Sit up. Yes, sir. So when I tell you I'm like this, I'm not trying to be difficult. My back is straight. I've got my hand on my chin, and for a third time, he interrupts the teacher and says, Mr. Bourgeois, we don't lay all over our desks, do we? I thought, well, I don't know how to answer that question at this point. Um, And then he did ask me a question that turned out was rhetorical. I didn't know that, though. So when he said... How would you feel if I was entertaining a prospective family and I'm just laying all over my desk? Now, I don't know what I was supposed to say. I think probably nothing. I will tell you what I did say. What I said is, I guess that depends how you want to represent yourself. Now, he did not appreciate the wisdom that I had just offered him. <laughs> Turns out little sixth grade Lance was not supposed to give that much truth. So he uh, rather sternly, harshly said, told the teacher that he was going to borrow Mr. Bourgeois. And so he invited me to step out in the hall and then step into his room, his office. And he very loudly and uh, in an angry way told me all that was wrong, that what I had done. So somewhere in there, as he starts talking, he says, uh, you have become a cynic. I go, what is that? Stop talking. It's my turn to talk. So he kept going. He goes, and you have become cynical. I'm like, what is it? He goes, stop talking. It's my turn to talk. He keeps going, and then he's like, and I refuse to allow your cynicism to, I'm like, what is, he stop talking. So I sat there, and then he finally stopped, and I, he goes, what do you have to say for yourself? I said, I have no idea what the word cynic, cynical, or cynicism means. And he said, 
2,000 words. I want a 2,000-word report on my desk Monday morning for that. This was on a Friday afternoon. And uh, he goes, I want a 2,000-word report on that. So I go home, and I spend, I spend all weekend writing that paper, which wasn't very exciting. But, you know, when we show quotes, we always give attribution to who quoted it. So here's mine, okay? This is not scholarly. This is out of the mind of sixth grade Lance and what he learned. You ready? That a cynic is someone who doubts the motive of others and generally has a negative outlook. Works for me. I think it might be right. At least close. That's what I came up with. So as I think back on that, I think, what's the impact of a person that has that? Now, if you've been with us in this study, we've been talking about Paul instruction to Timothy. And the last lesson, or two lessons ago, we talked about the fact that you needed to guard or entrust what's been handed to you. Last week was about enduring hardship. But this week, if you come out of that enduring hardship, and he says, look, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, and so I want you to practice and live your life as a soldier, which is hard work. I need you to be like an athlete. Compete according to the rules. I need you to be like a farmer. Labor enthusiastically. And there's rewards associated with each one of those three things. But what happens when life doesn't go the way that we think? Well, sometimes, maybe if you would allow me to say this, cynicism can begin to set in. That we can start looking around and start saying, what's the point? Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever matters. It's never going to go the right way. The chips are always down. It never goes in my favor, ever. I lose every time. We have a word for that. That's being a cynic or becoming cynical or practicing or living in cynicism. Why is it bad? Well, according to Dr. Firestone, she offers us these words. Cynicism is part of our defensive posture we take to protect ourselves. So it begins with the idea that it's not safe for me to be or think how I think or feel. So I'm going to protect myself. It's typically triggered when we feel hurt or angry by something, right? There's something that hasn't gone our way, and we decide we're going to put up a wall. And the cynicism is what we put it up with. So instead of dealing with those emotions directly, we allow them to fester and skew our outlook. I'm not going to let that touch me because that hurts too much. So I'm going to put up a wall, and I'm not going to deal with this directly. I'm just going to change my perspective so that it colors everything I think or feel. She goes on to say this. When we grow cynical towards one thing in our lives, we may slowly start to turn on everything. Anybody want to argue with that? Once I have it in one area, then I'll start seeing it everywhere. The negativity can become contagious, bringing down those around us. Anybody want to argue with that? is it put one person who becomes a cynic and then everybody else becomes cynical too because they speak with such influence and passion and everybody else will begin to be roped into that kind of toxicity. She concludes with this thought. It will lead us to alien others, alienate others acting in a hostile manner or to become self-protective and isolated. Because once the cynicism comes in, which begins with the fact that I won't deal with something directly, now all of a sudden it becomes my, my worldview now I begin to back away. Before I do, I pollute everybody around me, which leads me into the thing, I just step back, and I'm going to live in my own little world. Now think with me about what it looks like if you're Paul talking to Timothy. I want you to endure hardship. I want you to continue to love people. I want you to continue to pursue people. You know, that soldier, they train and they work hard every day. They may not ever go into battle, but you've got to be ready. Athlete, compete according to the rules. Stay in it. Do not... Do things that would disqualify yourself. Stay in the game. Farmers, it's hard work. Every day, hard work. Stay in the game. And you can imagine Timothy saying, 
Paul, what's the point? I'm not seeing any difference. I'm not seeing impact. This is wearing me out. People will never change. I think Paul has something to say to Timothy today. Encourage you to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. Now, part of what we talked about last week is what does it look like when we can't understand what God's doing? We talked about Paul being in prison. Well, why is he in prison? And he doesn't get an answer to that question. Just live in it. Be faithful. And we talked through four reminders that he offered us. Hey, you know what? God is our supreme example of somebody who endures victoriously. He stays in it. The fact is, you can chain up Paul, but you can't chain the gospel. No matter what happens in this life, know this, is that God will make a way. It's worth it to have the opportunity. And so we got to the end, and we talked about, well, sometimes the secret things belong to the Lord, and we don't get all the answers. How do we live in that? And I love this quote from Dr. Tony Evans. You have to believe that God knows what he's doing when he's not doing what you want him to do. You have to believe it. Because otherwise we're saying that God either does what I want him to do as if I'm omniscient, or he's doing what he wants to do, and then in that moment, what, he ceases to be good or he ceases to be trustworthy? No. The idea is this, is that I have to believe that God knows what he's doing when he's not doing what I want him to do. He doesn't cease to be good. I just have to lean in and learn how to trust more in those moments because I can't let go of that. And so I cling to that. So when we come into our passage today, if the question is, how do we lean in when we're enduring hardship? We don't see the fruit of what we're doing. Do we get to just throw away our righteousness? Do we get to just throw away the idea that God calls us to something? Oh, absolutely not. We remain steadfast in what God calls us to. And so he's going to give us three areas today where he wants to tell us we need to be faithful in our words, we need to be faithful in our availability, and we need to be faithful in our conduct, regardless of what we see going around. Because if he's not doing what we want to do, we don't just throw away our witness. We don't throw away and start living some life of rebellion. No, we lean in and trust more, and we raise the bar on our faithfulness. Let's look at this first one, faithfulness in our words. Starting in verse 14, Paul writes this, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babbling, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, Hymenaeus, Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There's a lot there as we start reading. I want to call attention to the very first thing he says is, remind them. Remind them. They know this, and I think if we're really honest, I'm not sure that we're hearing anything for the first time here. Remind us. The bigger question would be, why are we so forgetful, right? How can we be so forgetful that he begins with, I want you to remind them of this. And the first thing he says is, remind them because we need to know something. There is something inside us that likes to quarrel. Now, maybe it's coming out of that endure hardship, Maybe it's when we're enduring hardship that we just think, I'm angry inside, I'm getting bitter inside, and you need to know what I think, and you need to know how I feel. 
and I will find some vindication if I can win an argument with you. Now think with me, maybe that lands with you, I don't know. But when we find ourselves in a sense where he says, you know what, not to quarrel because it does no good. You know what it does? It ruins the hearers. It does no good. I hate to break it to you, but all those arguments that you may find yourself in around the water cooler or on social media, it's not working. We're not winning the world to Christ by arguing with people. I got to tell you, when I got to seminary, they, they recommended a particular Bible translation. And most every Bible translation has a strength. So I'm not arguing Bible translations here. It's the one that they were encouraging us to do that I got. And then I'm having to study it. And I'm having to see how closely it lines with the original languages. And you're going through all that stuff. And I realized that what had happened to me in the process was that Bible translation was no longer about me reading and understanding God's word. It was about me gaining the tools to argue. Now, you can figure out what that looks like in your life. For my life, if you believe that there's a gift called pastor-teacher, which I do, I do not believe there is a gift called pastor-arguer, and I felt like that's what I was becoming. I'm just going to argue. I can win arguments. I can beat you down in a conversation because I know what it says, and this translation's right, and you're wrong. And I remember coming to the point where I thought, okay, I've got to study. I mean, that's why you go to seminary, study the scriptures. So I thought, I've got to keep studying the scriptures. But what I had to do was I had to separate myself and thought, you know what? I'm going to go back to that Bible translation when I started studying scripture and reading the scriptures for fun and started growing in my walk with the Lord. And so now I had two scriptures, one that fed my soul and one that was feeding my mind. Because when all I was doing was feeding my mind, I was trying to win arguments. And that's what he says. You know what, Lance? It's not going to do you any good. Matter of fact, it's only going to ruin those people who hear. So instead, he says, do yourself, do your best to present yourself to God. Do yourself to come before the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. Here's your word. What do you have for me? What would you have me do as a soldier, as an athlete, as a farmer? So I'm bringing myself to you. Lord, what do you have for me? How would you like me to function in this life? Now, mind you, I think you and I would say, when you go to present yourself to the Lord, we would say, we would like to, for him to affirm us, right? Those words, job well done, good and faithful servant. Who doesn't want to hear that? We all want to hear that. So let's do ourselves to present ourselves to God as one approved, somebody that stands the test. It comes from metalworking that there has been this sense that you have stood the test. Now, let me be honest. Because there's not many people who teach the scriptures that do not know this verse. James chapter 3 is an intimidating verse. Not many of you should want to become teachers. And how many of us are like, yes, sign me up for this. You shouldn't want to be a teacher, for you know this, you're going to be judged with greater strictness. Oh, yeah, sign me up for more of that. It's a hard call. Which is, I think, why when he comes back and says, you know what, there's something different going on here about this person. It's not that you want to argue, it's that you want to understand the scriptures. Because he goes on to say, right, that you're going to be, present yourself to God, that you could be approved as a worker, you don't need to be ashamed, but you can handle the word of God correctly. That takes a lot of work. That's why we value training, we value education. We recognize that no man is an island to himself. We stand on the shoulders of 2,000 years of church history. And yet in this day, we have the privilege here at Grace if we've got a shepherding team with 13 other people. 
You've probably heard us talk about it. We preach our messages to each other on Wednesday mornings to get feedback from the other 12. Because it matters. When we stand before the Lord to say, Lord, what do you have for us? And he wants, we want to hear job well done, but we recognize if we fall into arguing, if we fall into errors in our theology, that that's going to create a problem. I use the analogy a lot of times, think if you had just one color to color a picture. Now, remember when you got your school supply list and you went from maybe four colors to eight and then maybe eight to 16, and then remember when you got the big box with the little sharpener on the back? 64 crayons. Because the more crayons, the better the picture. The more color, the more nuance is there. In the same way with our theology, if we find ourselves just doing theology by ourselves, we can go off the deep end. That's why you always do theology in community. You do it with other people so that you get more colors in the picture that help guide us and direct us in how we think about God's Word. Because if you ever have that moment where you come to something that nobody else in the history of Christianity has ever come up with, maybe you would clap. I would say, be careful. Because did God wait 2,000 years to introduce some new biblical truth just to you that nobody else sees? See, that's a scary place to be. So when we come into this, the idea that we want to present ourselves to God, Lord, what do you have for me? A worker who needs not to be ashamed, but can rightly handle the word of truth because it matters. It matters how we think through these things. So be cautious. Invite other crayons into the conversation that we can lean into. Lord, what do you have? Because if we're going to really present ourselves to the Lord, we got to be teachable before we start teaching because we all know people who teach that are not teachable and it doesn't go very well. So we learn how to present ourselves. But then he starts giving us some instructions, right? When he says this, avoid irreverent babble. Avoid those things that are just sayings. They're empty saying that people argue about, they throw out, maybe they sound pithy, maybe they sound good or really profound. He says, avoid those things. We don't need more of that stuff because it leads people into more and more ungodliness. So when we begin to teach, we teach Scripture. We teach truth. We're not teaching human philosophies. We're trying to teach life-changing truth that has been prescribed for us from God for everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. That's what we teach, not this irreverent babble that doesn't do any good, right? Because their talk will spread like gangrene. Gangrene. You know what gangrene is? When blood stops flowing to a part of the body that body tissue will begin to die. Now, any number of things can cause it, but that's what ends up happening. And the idea that you and I could be spreading spiritual gangrene. Now, I would ask you to consider, if you are doing that and gangrene sets in, blood or vitality quits flowing to that part of the body and that part of the body begins to die. Imagine with me if you and I are spreading falsehoods, irreverent babble, untruths, arguing with people over these empty phrases, and the fruit of that is people are dying in the body of Christ because they get cut off because they believe it. See, let not many of you want to be teachers because you will incur stricter judgment. It all matters how we think about this. Matter of fact, I feel really bad for Hymenaeus and Philetus because you could have your name. There's only so many names recorded for us in Scripture. And Hymenaeus and Philetus had their names recorded, and not in a way that you would ever want to have your name recorded in Scripture. 
They're the source of the spiritual gangrene. Matter of fact, it said, you know what? They were doing okay. They swerved from the truth. They were right here. They were right here in somewhere. I think they began maybe arguing. Maybe they lost and got rid of some of the other colors from their box. And they said, you know what we see? We see this. And all of a sudden, poison began to set, set in for them, and they found themselves spreading this gangrene. They swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection had already happened. Now, think with me. They were on the truth, and then they swerved from the truth. You could be on the road of truth today, and you could swerve tonight, and tomorrow you and I could be Philetus and Hymenaeus. Oh, that it would never be. Oh, that you and I will stay true to the truth of what God calls us to be, which is why we have to remain teachable, which is why we recognize we do theology in a community. We don't do it as one color. We do it with the whole, all the colors. And so when we come to this, we recognize, well, look, what did they do? They said the resurrection had already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Well, of course they're upsetting the faith of some. Imagine if Paul comes to you and says this, hey, it's hard work, but you're gonna endure. Well, how do we endure? What's it look like to endure? Well, as a soldier, as an athlete, and as a farmer. Well, that's really hard. Well, it is really hard, but there's a reward that's coming at the resurrection. Now imagine, if these two guys are saying the resurrection has already happened, and you're telling me today to endure so that I can have reward at the resurrection, but the resurrection's already happened, of course that's upsetting. Why am I enduring today if the moment of reward has already happened? You've got to be careful because it all matters, right? I guess I would ask you and I to consider this. What would be the standard for when spiritual gangrene could set into my soul or your soul? And ask yourself the question, how would you know? How would you know if you had been on the truth and then you swerved from the truth? Are you trusting that you and you alone would be able to detect if you swerved from the truth? Or do you need some other people around you to help, help you see it? Because if we swerve from the truth, we're a Philetus and a Hymenaeus away from having that same kind of impact in this world. Timothy, I don't want that for you. I want you to be God's man for God's purpose for the time that I've, he's called you to. That's what your calling is. So stay true to this moment. And all of a sudden, we've got to ask ourselves some questions. If we were to swerve from the truth, do you trust that you alone would be able to detect it? Or are you connected to anybody else in your world that you would trust well enough to lean into your life and tell you that? Because before we teach, we've got to be teachable. And if we're going to be teachable, we have to allow other voices. We have to value other colors in the crayon box to speak into where we are. We've got to be faithful in our words. I also have to be faithful in our availability. What ended up happening with Hymenaeus and Philetus, I, I started reading that section already. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Yes, notwithstanding Philetus and Hymenaeus, they upset some people, but know this, God is sovereign. That's the seal. God is sovereign. He knows who his are, and people may get upset. He can lead them back to truth, but know this, God remains in charge. And the second part of that, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, is we're in this constant process of diverting ourselves away from that kind of error. 
But we've got to be able to see the error. We've got to be able to lean into that. We have to be teachable. We have to allow people to speak into us so that we can do that. That's step one. Know this, God's in charge. When we talk about how we lean into our availability, we've got to stay true to truth. That's part of it. But look at where he goes from there, because in verse 20, he offers us an analogy. Look with me at verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable, okay? So two kind of vessels. There's the honorable vessels made out of gold and silver. There's the dishonorable vessels that are made out of wood and clay, okay? Two types. Therefore, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy for God's purposes, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, so we're talking about believers here, right? So Timothy, know that there's honorable gold and silver. There's dishonorable wood and clay. This is the dishonorable. It still has use, but not used as fully or as completely as the honorable. Now, if we're really honest, right, you and I as believers who struggle with sin and fall into sin patterns at times, sometimes run into sin patterns, we find ourselves over here. And I would imagine that there's any number of people watching, listening today that are saying, I've already disqualified myself. There's no way God would ever use me for honorable purposes. I'm thinking, yeah, have you ever laid all over a desk in the library like I did? And you think, okay, but that's not it. There's nothing that disqualifies. As a matter of fact, you're in this circle. You want to get to this circle? How do you get into this circle? Well, he tells you. Did you catch that? If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will become useful as a vessel of honor. So he moves over here. If you're here, the great news is this. We just need to be cleansed for us to move into this circle where God says, now I can use you for my purposes, which is phenomenal. That's what we're after. God would use us? Well, how do we cleanse? Well, John tells us. If we confess our sins, if we acknowledge our sins, what does God do? He's faithful, he's just. He forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Same word. Here's the reality of my life and your life is we all need this cleansing. If you're here today or you're watching and you don't know the Lord, the idea is this, is that sin has left us muddied by the sin of this world. And so we're separated from God because of that. Jesus came to earth. He was sinless. He went to the cross to pay the penalty of sin, which was death. He paid it and he walked out of the grave three days later and conquered death, offering us life. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, he longs to offer you life. And you step into life with the acknowledgement that says, Lord, I believe that when you did that, you did that for me. And boom, just like that, you become a son or a daughter of the king and you're welcomed into God's family. When John's writing this passage, John is writing to a group of believers. And the idea is this, we can be sons and daughters of the king and still find ourselves at odds or out of fellowship with the Lord. Think about this as more as a dinner table. The opportunity to say, you know what? I've got need to be cleansed before I sit down at the dinner table and have this intimate fellowship with my father. And so we acknowledge, hey, what I did was wrong. When I, the way I drove, the way I spoke to somebody today, the way I drove my car today, the way I handled this financial situation today, the way I handled a coworker today, all of that stuff. And then we acknowledge it and then we get welcome back. So let's put it in the context of this. 
We started the day here, Lord, use me for your purposes. Everything's good. Use me for your purposes. Well, then we got mad at somebody. We, were, we talked ugly to a member of the wait staff at lunch. Now we're over here. You know, all that it takes to move you back into this is the acknowledgement that said, God, you're right. I don't know why I treated that person that way. That was ugly of me. Please forgive me for that. I need to reconcile with that person. And God says, you're forgiven. Now let's get you back into the honorable use category. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves back in that relationship. That's the gift of this. If we're going to be availed, faithful in our availability, we have to learn how to live in the reality that multiple times a day, throughout the day, we may find ourselves stepping back into the circle. That's the reality. But the good news is this. You want to be used of God? You have not in any way alienated yourself for the rest of the day, week, month, year, decade, whatever. No, we just need to be cleansed so that he can cleanse us and put us back in honorable use for his purposes. And it comes just like he says right there. And all of a sudden, we become set apart for honorable use, set apart as holy, as unto the Lord, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work, whatever he would have for you. Now, I got to tell you, share a quote with you uh, here by Lewis Berry Chafer. He writes this, it may be concluded that defilement in the believer hinders every phase of his priestly office. Defilement. In that moment where we go from being an honorable vessel to the dishonorable vessel. In the dishonorable vessel, it may be concluded that defilement in the believer's hinders every phase of his priestly office when you're in this kind of vessel. It makes fellowship with Christ impossible and robs him of his personal joy and blessing. Anybody want to disagree with that? that when we find ourselves in, as this dishonorable vessel because we've welcomed sin into our life, we've not been cleansed from it, is that you will find very little joy in this circle. God made it that way because we were made for this. And we find ourselves here, of course that's not there. Let me give you an example. When I visit with people and they are struggling with some sin and they say, you know what, it doesn't impact anybody other than me. It doesn't impact anybody else. And I'm like, really? You really believe that it, you could have a sin that doesn't impact anybody else? So one of the examples that comes up, somebody says, hey, I was involved with some explicit stuff on the internet that's really inappropriate, but you know what? Nobody else knows about it. And then we have this conversation. Really? Tell me what it was like when you went home. Tell me what it was like when you could not engage somebody because you felt so much guilt and shame. Tell me what it was like when they pulled away from you or they tried to pursue you and you were like, back off. What it was like when now you're upset, the other person's upset, maybe your kids come through the house and now you bite their heads off. You wanna tell me that you sin in isolation? It never happens that way. There's always a global aspect to our sin. Remember last week when we talked about the armor of God and we talked about the enemy that throws those fiery darts because he's just so accurate. You think you've changed, you think you're righteous, you think you're protected by God, you don't matter. You've never changed. And they, he starts throwing those darts, you better get that shield of faith up. They said, no, 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 no. I was an honorable vessel, I made a mistake, I became a dishonorable vessel, but you know what? I prayed, I went through 1 John 1, 9, I acknowledged my sin and he moved me back over here. And by faith, I pick up that, that shield and I'm secure in him. See, that's how it has to work. See, this lesson today doesn't come in isolation. If you're Timothy reading this letter, you just read it straight through. It just so happened that we got part of it last week and part of it this week. Because all of this comes to fruition as we start talking about how do we lean into this? 
Because he says, verse 22, so flee youthful passions. You know, Timothy, you're enduring. I know it's hard. And sometimes when life is hard, we want to numb ourselves by using something to numb us, some numbing agent. And so often people go to hedonism. That's not it, Timothy. That's not what we're going to do. You're going to flee that stuff. Matter of fact, here's what we're going to do. And he says, you're going to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Pursue righteousness. This isn't a time for you to go into hedonism, Timothy. This is a time for you to really express God's standards in your life. Manifest righteousness. Live out your faith in everything that you're doing. You keep pursuing that. Pursue your faith. Live dependently upon the Lord and as he provides. Don't, don't try to be in a position where you're trying to figure out what you can manage. What does it look like for the Lord to lead you and to sustain you? How do you lean into that? This is a time for that moment, Timothy. Pursue love. Pursue seeking God above all and then seek his best for others. Even those people who are hurting you and wounding you, absolutely. And he's gonna say more about that in a minute. Pursue love. Seek God and then seek his best for others. That may mean you've got some difficult conversations. That's fine. But we're not gonna argue because that yields no fruit. Pursue peace. Live stable lives in an uncertain world. Is it possible that you could be on a ship being rocked by the ocean and feel completely stable? Well, if you're basing your life on the Lord, yes, you can. Is the, the world can be shaking all around you, but you can find stability because of the Lord and who he is. And yet so often, as I mentioned earlier, we find ourselves in a position that says, you know what? When I'm feeling hurt, wounded, fatigued, weary from enduring, I can lash out at other people. And so he looks down and he offers him some more words. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies, knowing that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So pursue those things. Pursue the righteousness. Pursue the faith, the love. And the peace, but by, by good grief, avoid verbal combat, which we fall into so often because he wants to tell us a few things. I mean, just follow the logic of it. If arguments do not honor the Lord, because that's not what he would do, he said it wouldn't work. And then you recognize that, matter of fact, arguments come from our indwelling sin. And typically we think arguments the other person's fault, right? Like, well, if they would just listen to my greatness, but it's not always that. Sometimes it's what James says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? And if he stopped right there, we'd be like, him or her, it's clearly their fault. If they just listen more, you know what? God gave them two ears. They should listen quite as much as they speak, right? And maybe we need to be the one to hear that. But James goes on and answers the question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire, you don't have, so you murder you covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So not only is it not God's plan, but it begins in us. It's our own conflict and our own sin nature that creates the argument because the arguments are grounded in our interests and not God's. Now, if that's true, then we recognize that arguments are not even God's pathway. Why? Because God's already said they do more harm than good. That's not the way he wants us to be about in this world, that we go around arguing with everybody. That's not it. Our anger does not draw people to Christ. It never will. It never has. So we find ourselves in an interesting situation because when he comes back, 
Read the words again there in verse 24. And so that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Kind to everyone. Both genders, every race, every political party, every agenda. Be kind. Be kind. Now, the really strange thing that blows my mind when I read this is the fact that that word kind appears twice in the New Testament. Once is right there. The other time, 1 Thessalonians 2.7, when Paul writes, but we were gentle, that's the same Greek word, among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, think with me if you would. Nursing mother, infant, nurturing, caring, selfless, giving. Paul's words are like that nursing mother. The same word that he uses to describe the nursing mother is the same word that he says, we're not to be quarrelsome, but we are to be that picture to everyone. Think with me about how that changes the way we think about our engagement with the world. We're to be kind, like the nursing mother to her infant. We are to be that kindness to everybody whose paths we cross. Not angry, not argumentative, not feeling better than them, not feeling arrogant or brash. That's not the picture of a nursing mother at all. And that's the image that we have because we're gonna argue people into the kingdom. Matter of fact, that's not the way God got us into the kingdom if you know him. Do you presume on the riches and his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Is it any wonder that God draws us to kindness and then he says, I want you to be kind in this world? That's what he's calling us to. What a picture for us to understand what we're being asked for. Because when you look back at the verse, let's go back, verse 24. We're not gonna quarrel. We're gonna be kind. The picture is a nursing mother, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Look, this isn't rocket science here. There's a double standard in this world. The world looks at us and expects kindness while they hurl whatever kind of insults they want to hurl at us. We don't fight them according to their tools. We keep that image of a nursing mother and we keep loving people. They're lost. That's part of it. So look at 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. It doesn't mean that you let every argument stand or every falsehood stand. You can correct them, but you're not in it to win. You're in it to show them a picture of Jesus Christ. You're in it to say, hey, let me add another crayon to the way that you're thinking about life. You need another crayon for this picture. You don't have all the colors that you need to understand what's going on here. But we don't do it in an angry way. We don't do it in an arrogant, brash way. We don't do any of that. No, we do it, we correct them with gentleness. Because look at the rest of 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Wow. If we view people in this world as our enemy, two things happen. One, we are in competition with them. Two, we have mistaken the fact that there is a real enemy in this world that seeks to bring ruin to me and to everybody else in the world. We've got to recognize that the people in this world are lost, they may not understand, because the world will offer them anything and everything in this world to keep them satisfied. And yet they know that it doesn't work. 
be it, let me have a network, let me have power, let me have influence, let me have material possessions, let me have a family, let me have this, whatever it is. And the world is finding out it doesn't fulfill the soul like I thought that it would, and it shouldn't because God has more for them. But the reality is we get to love people and carry them to the foot of Christ through our kindness. So it changes the way we talk because the reality is we've got some things to say to them, but we've got to be faithful in our words. We have to be faithful in our availability because when it comes to our conduct, how do we treat those outside of the church? They're not enemies. They have been blinded by the enemy and we have a chance to come alongside them. Madeline Lingle, the, writer, the author, writes, writes about it this way. We don't draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. Imagine what she's offering if we were to sit there and say, you're just so dumb. I can't believe you buy that. I can't believe that you thought that would be meaningful to you. No, that's not how we do it. We show them a light that is so lovely that they want with all of their hearts to know the source of it come alongside. We have to listen. We have to engage. There is a lost world, and God wants to use you and me for his purposes. We're going to have to deal with our own sin patterns because every time we fall into a sin pattern, it makes us this dishonorable vessel. It's okay. There's redemption. Go before the Lord, acknowledge it, and get cleansed, and come back and re-enter the game. That's the calling for us. Joe Aldridge, in his book, Relational Evangelism, says it this way, a servant is sensitive to areas of tension, frustration, and imbalance, and then relates the gospel to a specific need, okay? If you're going to talk with somebody and they have a specific need, you're going to have to listen and engage them with kindness before they would tell you what that is. You're so busy arguing with them, they're not going to be vulnerable and tell you where their struggle is. You're going to have to care. You're going to have to display kindness to them and then invite them to share with you. And when that happens, man, you and I have the capacity to find the crack in the rim of the soul, that area of need which the gospel becomes good news, and then you share it. Oh, man, it's a different way to live. It's a different way to live, but it is what God calls us to. Little sixth-grade Lance never, never forgot the word cynic, cynical, and cynicism again. Could the headmaster have handled it better? Oh, most definitely. There was not much kindness in what he offered me that day. But I would ask you to consider, what is your cynicism meter on? How cynical are you becoming? Because I, I, I think I can make this as a bold statement. If you want to push me on this, then you can push me on this. But I, I, I think that the, the level of our cynicism is going to be tied at how much we're looking at the world versus how much we're looking at Christ because this world will fail us every time, all the time. And that will just lead us to more disillusionment. What's the point? You look to Christ, well, the author of Hebrews says it this way, let's run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's look to him. He's the victorious, enduring one, we talked about last week, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross because he knew what was to come. I'll endure this because I know what's to come despising the shame, and oh, by the way, he's seated at the right hand, the throne of God. He is victorious. We look to him. He will sustain us. He will help us move into this. That's the calling for us. So I guess I would ask you, I'm going to ask you some questions here, faithful in your words and your availability and conduct. And if you want to have this conversation with another crayon in your box, go find that person, okay? But let me ask you, are your words life-giving or life-eroding? 
do you find that what you're offering this world, either other believers or people who do not yet know Christ, are your words life-giving? Are you teachable? We have too many teachers teaching who are not teachable in this world. We've got to be teachable. We're not above reproach. We've got to lean in and allow other things to speak into who we are and what we understand. Are you faithful in your words? How about in your availability? Are you living with a spiritual or a moral integrity? Do you find that you're living over here and there are moments where you come back and dishonorable? That's fine. We reconcile. We confess that and we get brought back into this. But are you living with a spiritual and a moral integrity? And then according to Paul, are you pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace? Because the alternative he presents is if we're not doing that, then we're going to pursue verbal combat with people, which is not of the Lord. It's more about our own sin patterns. It's more about all those things. And then lastly, are you faithful in your conduct? Are you a promoter of unity who is kind and patient? Are you kind and patient? Do you view people in this world like that nursing mother? What a portrait. Are you, and then lastly, are you treating those who don't know the Lord as the enemy? Because they're not. They're not the enemy. They're exactly where you and I once were. Lost, trying to find a way to make this life work, all of which is designed to bring us to a savior that we know and we, in our kindness and patience, have the opportunity to tell them about if we're listening and if we're faithful. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast, published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.